All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Tuesday, November the 14th. Um, I got these beautiful orange leaves turning outside my window, and we just uh, just passed uh, just passed Veterans Day here. Um, How's your weekend? It was good. Yes. Happy Veterans Day. I hope everyone out there had a, a nice weekend. Ricky, we talked about this before, like the importance of holidays that gives you a chance to reflect on whatever the holiday might be. And in this case, it's all of the service and sacrifice that so many of our friends and uh, people in this country have made for us. And so I'm sure you and I and many people out there reached out to veterans in their lives and spent a few moments thinking, uh, thinking of them and appreciating what they did. But as always with these, these holidays, the best way to, to really honor veterans is to to take care of them every day and to be honoring their sacrifice and their service every day by making sure that they they do okay when they come home. And so uh, it's a good reminder to me and hopefully to everyone out there that of all of, all of the work that these people have done for us and hopefully we can continue to serve them on the back end. But yeah, as you said, we're we're very much into November. Someone asked me the other day like what my plans were for Thanksgiving and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And then he was like, it's two weeks away. I was like, yeah, I guess that it is. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, you know the days keep coming and they don't they don't stop coming. Name, name that song, everyone out there. That should be a text us, send us a message. Name where that reference just comes from. All right. Well, what do we uh, what do we got on tap? What are we talking about? So, Ricky, a few weeks ago, you mentioned to me, and I forget if this was on air or just after we stopped recording, or you had sent me a message, but you had said it was post our conversation, our episode on Israel and Palestine, and a very challenging episode for us and but after that conversation you're like hey northern ireland and the the troubles in ireland that that's something that i think could be interesting to look into and you you had said yourself you're like i'm i don't really know much about them but i think there could be some parallels there that might be worth talking about so it's with your ideas i got to work and i went out and uh, we reached out to a professor at the uh National University of Ireland in Galway, Professor Larry Donnelly, he, he teaches in the law school over there. He's actually, we'll give his bio in, in greater depth when he comes on, but he actually grew up here in, in Boston, went to school here in Boston, and then moved to Ireland where he's been now for several decades working and teaching in, in Ireland. So he's going to come on to try to have that conversation, to try to see what parallels, if any, we can draw between the conflict uh, between Ireland and Great Britain and the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And I'm really excited for the conversation, curious to see where it goes. I think Professor Donnelly is like uniquely situated to provide his perspective on this and uh, really excited to have him on. Yeah, I uh, I can't wait. You know, I am the ideas guy. You're the uh, You're the action guy. That's not normally what we say, but in this case, <laughs> <laughs> it is very much true. So uh, before we bring Professor Darling on, a quick reminder, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen here at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, in honor of having an Irish professor on, I have a little bit of a joke for you today. <laughs> Hopefully you will think it's a joke. Sometimes you don't. Uh, so we got... Two guys, Patty and Mick, are heading down to the, the pub, Ricky. They see a sign in a shop window. It says, Tree Fellers Wanted. And it says, great pay, flexible hours, no experience necessary. Patty turns to Mick and he says, what do you reckon? And Mick replies, it's a shame there's only two of us. <laughs> That's good. I like it. <laughs> Thank you for the laugh. Hope people out there laughed as well. And with that, let's bring on Professor Donnelly. All 
right, we are now thrilled to welcome Professor Larry Donnelly to the program. Professor Donnelly teaches legal skills at the National University of Ireland, Galway, where he is the founder and director of the School of Law's highly regarded clinical legal education program. He presents conference papers and publishes law journal articles in Ireland and internationally on legal education and comparative law. He's an attorney with substantial experience of practice before the state and federal bars of Massachusetts. He was active in politics and government here in Massachusetts, in the United States, and now in Ireland contributes regularly to various media outlets on politics, current affairs, and law in both the United States and Ireland. From 2010 to 2012, he was on a leave of absence from NUIG and worked as the manager of the Public Interest Law Alliance, which was a Dublin-based project of the Free Legal Advice Centers, which seeks to expand the use of law in public interest and for the benefit of marginalized and disadvantaged people in Ireland. He remains a consultant to PILA. Mr. Donnelly is a graduate of the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, and of Suffolk University Law School here in Boston. He also grew up in my hometown of Milton, and so we are thrilled to welcome Professor Donnelly to the program. Great to be with you. Good to be keeping it local. Yes, now we have, there's so many connections. And so can you just tell, like your bio, I think is so interesting. And can you just give a little more context? How did you go from growing up here in Boston, going to college and law school in Boston to now living and teaching and opining on public affairs and politics in Ireland? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's, it's a good question. Uh, you know, look, and thanks for having me, guys. I should say it's a, it's a great honor to be with you. Um, you know, I, I started off in, you know, grew up in East Milton and very much in a political family. Uh, you know, my great uncles were Boston City Councilors. One of them was an attorney general in Massachusetts, lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Um, and then my uncle, Brian Donnelly, was the late Brian Donnelly, was the United States congressman for uh, seven terms before being Bill Clinton's ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago uh, for a term as well. So um, politics was definitely to the fore in my uh, upbringing, and I've always been obsessed with it. I suppose to be to be blunt, uh, and yeah, I went to I went to my local grammar school, St. Agatha's. I went to BC High. Uh, I went to Holy Cross. I went to Suffolk Law. Uh, not an uncommon path, I suppose, for uh, someone like me. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I I was lucky enough to get a a job with a firm while I was working in law school. Uh, Curtin Murphy and O'Reilly was the name of it. It's now dissolved, but um, it was a great firm. I learned an awful lot from the guys and girls there. Uh, I spent two years in law practice after law school with them, uh, but I quickly discovered law practice wasn't for me, to, to be blunt. Uh, and having spent um, some time in Ireland, I said, look, um, you know, maybe a year or two go over there, you know, see if I can get some work, figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life, uh, and then come back to Boston. Well, the problem was it was a one-year fellowship that I was awarded in 2001 to teach legal research and writing, uh, and one year has turned into 20-odd years. They couldn't get rid of me, and I was very happy um, at the law school, and that slowly, uh, you know, turned into, uh, I suppose, being able to marry my, my interest in the law with um, my interest in politics, and I started doing media work over here um, on U.S. politics, which people will be interested to know that uh, Irish people are endlessly fascinated um, with American politics. And um, I think in particular, since the rise of Donald Trump, they have really tuned in, uh, oftentimes uh, aghast, it should be said, but they have tuned in. Um, and it's been good for me uh, in many ways. Uh, so I, I'm still teaching law school, still uh, do a lot of political commentary, and I'm married to an Irish woman, and where uh, we have, she had a son. I have a 24 year old stepson, and I have a uh, an 11 year old little guy, uh, another Larry Donnelly. So, um, you know, what I would say to to people, you know, in in college or young people generally is, don't ever say I'll never do this or I'll never do that, because if you'd said to me uh, 25 years ago that I'd be sitting here talking to you guys from uh, my home in Wicklow in Ireland, I would have said you're out of your mind. So. Uh, <laughs> You got to go with the flow and let things take you where they take you. And I've been very lucky. It's it's a really great story. And uh, I appreciate you giving the full context to it. And I think at the end of this conversation, Ricky and I would kind of like to circle back to what the, maybe the current political interest in like what's happening in the United States with this run up to the, the 2024 presidential, presidential election. But as we had said, like the reason that we wanted to have you on the program is in the context of what's happening in Israel and Palestine. And so just to start, can you 
just give an overview of what the reaction to the conflict has been in Ireland in particular and maybe Western Europe in general? Yeah, I, I think that the I, I once thought I, I used to say kind of regularly that the biggest political difference or the biggest political difference that would prove to exist uh, between the United States and Western Europe uh, was on the issue of climate change uh, and that Western Europe took it um, far more seriously and viewed it as far more of a priority than um, at least a lot of people in the United States would do. Uh, I've reversed course on that in light of recent events. Uh, I now believe that the way that the Israel-Palestine conflict is viewed um, is, in fact, the single biggest difference between uh, how Western Europeans and Americans see things. And that is particularly uh, pronounced uh, here on Ireland. I mean, if we look at, you know, other countries in Western Europe, um, we would see an awful lot of demonstrations, pro-Palestinian demonstrations, uh, a lot of people putting pressure on governments to, uh, you know, walk away from pre-existing commitments and support for uh, Israel in light of what they view as uh, a grossly disproportionate response to the events of October 7. Um, that, you know, is out there. But, you know, for instance, countries like Germany, for obvious historical reasons, uh, as well as the United Kingdom, uh, have been reticent to walk away from those commitments. And by and large, uh, the European Union, um, to the, you know, to the, to a lot of critical comment and a lot of critical, um, you know, I suppose, a lot of criticism from people, particularly on the European left, uh, has been pretty solidly with Israel, uh, if you had to say. I mean, critical, not not entirely supportive, but by and large, um, understanding of where Israel is coming from here. Uh, in Ireland, I would say that the situation is quite different from that. Um, in, 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 at two levels, on the on the left of Irish politics, after the horrific events uh, that perpetrated by Hamas uh, in Israel. Uh, before Israel even reacted, uh, the uh, the political left uh, in Ireland immediately started posing Palestinian flags on social media pages, praising this as an uprising uh, that needed to happen, uh, applauding uh, Hamas for standing up to uh, what they would regard to as a brutal and oppressive regime. Uh, I think it went way too far. One of the things that I... I said, and I've been I've been criticized for this, but uh, my academic colleagues uh, wrote a letter to the Irish Times, the newspaper of record here, and this is how they described what happened on October 7th. This is, frankly, this is exactly what they said. The incursion by Palestinian armed groups on October 7th included criminal attacks against civilians. That was the milquetoast characterization uh, of a brutal atrocity uh, in Israel. And that, to my way of thinking, sadly, uh, is representative of where uh, the left in Ireland is coming from. They are completely uh, skewed in terms of how they view this. Okay, It's extremely pro-Palestinian. The government, uh, you know, who comprised of moderates at this stage, nonetheless, uh, it has adopted uh, what, what, you know, its European allies would say is something approaching uh, a pro-Palestinian stance. I mean, we have very recently uh, the Taoiseach, the prime minister of this country, uh, saying that the actions uh, of Israel uh, as of late uh, are not, um, cannot be characterized as self-defense. What they are are disproportionate acts of revenge. Um, this is very much discordant with, uh, first of all, the European Union stance. But then if we look to the other side of the Atlantic, I mean, these, you know, the position of the Irish government, again, a centrist government, um, you know, would be there with people like Congresswoman Tlaib and others, whereas the position of the Irish left would be even more radical uh, than some of the things that uh, politicians on the left uh, in the United States have said. So uh, there is a dramatic, dramatic difference between how uh, events uh, have been portrayed here uh, and the thinking, I should say, the thinking of most people. Uh, there's a two polls that I've seen which are mere opposites, okay, in that about 50% of Americans side instinctively uh, with Israel. About 50% uh, of Irish people side instinctively with Palestine.
now you've obviously lived in in both in both places for for many odd years. What do you think kind of drives this difference in perception of you know who's in the right and who's in the wrong here? It it is you know for it's a historical perspective, and and I'm, I might be sort of glib on this one, but I think I, and I'm ju- I'm just trying to illustrate the point in how I say it. The reality is that because of the nature of the foundation uh, of the state of Israel coming as it did uh, in the modern state of Israel, I should say, I'm not going to go back millennia, but in, ter- in terms of the modern state of Israel uh, in the wake uh, of World War II, in the wake uh, of the most colossal tragedy probably in the history of humankind, the Holocaust, um, you know, the powers of the world. And it's interesting to note that, for instance, the United States and the Soviet Union were on the same side in this one, um, decided that the Jewish people needed a state and a place that they could call their own, where they would be supported, where they would be defended, where in some way, in some small way, the rest of the world would atone for what had happened um, to the Jewish people. Uh, and that involved, you know, at the end of the day, that did involve the displacement uh, of an awful lot of Arab people. That is the that is the, the reality of the, of the situation. And that is viewed, uh, you know, as uh, by many Irish people as something kind of analogous to uh, the actions of England and the United Kingdom uh, effectively in taking um, six counties of this island, you know, in the north uh, and, you know, taking it for themselves. And, you know, to boil it down again, I don't want to be glib, an awful lot of Irish people, for their, from their point of view, they look at this as the is- Israel are the Brits and we are the Palestinians. And I, again, that's a gross oversimplification. But I do think if you were to ask an awful lot of ordinary people on the street as to how they perceive this, uh, that would be that would approximate uh, the answer that you would hear from an awful lot of them. That's really interesting and frankly exactly why Ricky and I wanted to talk to you because you were able to provide that perspective. For our listeners that aren't completely aware uh, of the history of Great Britain and Ireland in on the island of Ireland, uh, I know you are not an expert historically on this, but could you at least give a little context of that history? Well, I mean, it, it's it's not an understatement to say that it, uh, it's a tortured history. I, I would never call it as tortured uh, as the history of Israel and Palestine, uh, but it is nonetheless uh, a tortured history going back, you know, 800 years, as some people uh, would say. But the modern incarnation of this, as I said, was, um, you know, the, the appropriation of the six counties in Northern Ireland uh, you know, obviously on the island of Ireland to uh, the United Kingdom. And not only was, you know, there was that, you know, did that happen, but what happened in Northern Ireland was that there was systemic discrimination against uh, the nationalist or the Catholic uh, people uh, in Northern Ireland. They didn't have a full say in democracy. They were discriminated against uh, at every level. Educational opportunity was denied. Uh, opportunities to get into uh, the, you know, to the police, the fire, all the institutions, um, you know, were all denied. They, you know, the the police force itself uh, was almost exclusively uh, Protestant Unionists uh, who, you know, exacted a particular form uh, of justice. So it was a pretty horrible situation uh, for Catholics uh, in the North, and at least in you know the modern era, that led to. Uh, you know, the rise of, of the provisional Irish Republican Army uh, and an awful lot of sympathy uh, to the Irish Republican Army, whose stated aim was to uh, get the Brits out and unify uh, the Irish jurisdiction under one flag, uh, the tricolor. Uh, and uh, as such, it embarked upon uh, a program of terror. Uh, I suppose one person's terror is another person's freedom fighter. Uh, but the reality is that an awful lot of um, atrocities were carried out and carried out on both sides. Uh, and again, here's where there's an, al- an analogy in the sense that, you know, what the Irish Republican Army were doing, uh, they were a guerrilla group. They were a sort of a grassroots group. Uh, I don't want to draw direct parallels between them and Hamas, but the other parallel here is what you had was a state actor, that is the United Kingdom, 
perpetrating horrific act, acts of violence, uh, and again, all sorts of corruption, discrimination, et cetera, on people. And then you had uh, a group, whether they call them terrorists or freedom fighters, who were responding to what happened and responding out of desperation in the only way that they knew how to do so. And again, that's where a lot of people, especially uh, in Sinn Féin, uh, the political wing of the now defunct uh, Irish Republican Army, uh, that's ex exactly how they would see things. And that's why uh, they are so instinctively sympathetic uh, to Palestine. And not, I would argue not just to Palestine, pa Palestinians, uh, but to Hamas. And indeed, the fact is that they have had uh, over many years at Sinn Féin party conferences, Hamas has been represented on numerous occasions. Uh, now, Sinn Féin is trying to walk some of that back, but that is a reality. So again, there is that other parallel, I suppose, a more modern par parallel that exists between, uh, again, how people, you know, or exists that exists in, I suppose, uh, you know, goes some way to explaining why some people in this country feel the way they do. And you, we started off sort of with the disclaimer that you're not a historian. So I want to give you that cover here, but just to try and get your sense of what the perception of the IRA was during um, sort of the height of the troubles in the 60s, 70s, 80s, versus how maybe it's viewed today um, in, in, I guess, either within sort of the Irish Catholic community in Northern Ireland or by Brits or other Irish people in Southern Ireland. Well, I mean, I, I you know, the look, the you know, we there's conversations here all the time about the old IRA back in the day in the 1920s when uh, Ireland was, you know, look seeking its independence and all that. And, and that that IRA would enjoy, you know, ex extraordinary support, uh, you know, from people in the Irish Republic, uh, you know, for for doing what it's so we're fighting what it would see as a just war, a just conflict, um, the more recent incarnation, that is the Troubles, um, the reality is that the vast majority of people in the Republic of Ireland, again, Catholic nationalists, yet um, they, the vast majority would have totally rejected um, the IRA's campaign uh, of violence uh, in Northern Ireland. And that would have led and still precipitates a good deal of ill feeling between um, people uh, in the Republic and in Catholics and nationalists uh, in the North, uh, you know, in the Catholics and the nationalists in the North would have felt as if they were an abandoned people, you know, that they were abandoned by uh, those who should have been looking out for them uh, most strongly. So the, uh, you, know, to, you know, historically and to this day, uh, the IRA, at least in this part of the island, was never a popular organization, was a deeply unpopular organization, as a matter of fact. Um, in the North, um, yeah, there would have been pockets of support uh, for the IRA. And certainly after atrocities, after, for instance, Bloody Sunday, uh, when innocent people were shot and killed uh, in Derry, there would have been surges in popularity, surges in membership uh, of the IRA. But um, even there, uh, the reaction to the IRA would have been one of fear, because you know, wouldn't criticize them or say anything bad, because uh, you wouldn't know where you'd find yourself after, after you did so. Uh, and also, a lot of those people, uh, because Northern Ireland is a small place, a lot of those people would have felt, uh, you know, whether through family or friends, they would have been affected by uh, some of the horrible things that the IRA did. So, um, you know, look, there's some revision, revisionist history around this. There's an awful lot of it in the United States, to be frank, uh, where Irish America is grossly uh, out of step. Uh, with the thinking here in Ireland. Uh, so there is some you know, some of that rose-tinted glasses stuff. But by and large, you know, the IRA is not recalled fondly. And certainly uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, it is, you know, still used by conservative politicians as, as something of a bogeyman where, you know, and for obvious understandable reasons. I maybe just want to talk a little bit and, and Kelly, if there's something else you want, maybe we can circle back to, but just about the sort of the resolution to the Good Friday Accords. And obviously that was that was kind of a political one, um, which is, you know, difficult to have when one group is a, a terrorist organization and the other is a state actor, you know, essentially propped up by the British government. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the Good Friday Agreement was, you know, a real triumph of 
um, diplomacy at, at one level. And I mean, there's one person who virtually everybody who was involved uh, in all the negotiations in the run up to um, the Good Friday Agreement, there's one person who people would give the most credit to. And I think that's right. And that's uh, John Hume, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, John was a, uh, a nationalist, a, ca a Catholic politician, but who belonged to um, a moderate uh, party, the Social Democratic and Labor Party, uh, a moderate nationalist party, an alternative to Sinn Féin, which historically was always much more popular uh, than Sinn Féin. One of the funny things is now in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin is much more popular uh, than the SDLP, which kind of makes you wonder about, you know, in this post-Good Friday era, are we still as polarized as ever, uh, which is an interesting point. But, um, you know, the Good Friday Agreement to me, uh, as much as anything, and, and the cessation at, you know, writ large uh, of hostility, it was, it was almost as if things ran their course. People were sick to death uh, of violence. People were sick uh, and saw that ultimately it was totally futile, that nobody was getting anything from it, that it was plaguing their society. And uh, you know, I've, I've read some very good academic papers um, that a lot of it had to do with globalization and technology. And that when people in Northern Ireland started to realize that, hey, not everybody lives like this in this crazy world where we hate each other, it started to dawn on people that there's got to be a better way to do this. So with some tremendous negotiation on all sides, and I should say the United States involvement in this is probably one of the very few foreign policy triumphs that the U.S. has had in the past, I don't know, 40 years. Um, and, you know, that all, I think, led to uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Now, Northern Ireland is still a very divided society. Uh, there are still splinter groups, you know, and, you know, who, who, Walk, people who walked away from the IRA when it, you know, basically uh, held up its, you know, put away its guns. Um, there are splinter groups, there are radicals, there are radicals on the other side, um, you know, who are still there waiting in the wings, looking to exploit certain things when, in, you know, they can't be dismissed. Uh, but by and large, Northern Ireland is a much more peaceful uh, society than it was. What they're doing, what the U.S. is trying to help, and I note that Joe Kennedy, uh, former Congressman Kennedy, is now up there. Uh, is trying to, uh, you know, I suppose, expand economic prosperity uh, to match uh, the peace that by and large stands there. But but again, um, you know, don't kid yourself. It still is uh, very much a divided society. Yeah, I imagine you've spent far more time there than I have, but it, it struck me every time I've been there, like how you can almost still feel the tension in the air. But with that said, we are 25 years on at this point from the Good Friday Agreement. And it would be hard to argue that it was anything but this tremendous success that people probably five years before, certainly 10 years before, never could have seen coming. And again, I know you are not like an expert on Middle East politics, and this is this uh, maybe an even far more intractable issue in the Middle East than it is in, in Ireland. But this idea that like really a two-state solution can exist and be a possibility <laughs> I guess our, our question was really like what what precipitated this discussion is like what lessons could well-meaning people from Israel and Palestine take from what happened in Ireland? Yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a really good there, are, there. I think there are abundant lessons that can be taken, but I don't think that they will. And that's my very sad conclusion. Uh, I think we're a long ways off from uh, a Good Friday type agreement uh, in the Middle East. I mean, I hope to God I'm wrong, uh, but I think we are a long way from that. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. Uh, I think that as palpable as in, the divide was in, uh, in Northern Ireland, um, I don't think it's anywhere near as palpable the hatred, um, you know, between not everyone, but, you know, in particular, uh, you know, a, a certainly a substantial segment uh, of both both communities and uh, more importantly, uh, their political leadership. And I think, you know, again, my take on this is very much somewhere in the middle. I mean, uh, again, as somebody who's transatlantic, my position is probably right in the middle of the Atlantic uh, on this stuff. But that having been said, um, you know, I think the Palestinians, you know, Again, giving them the fact that they are living in pretty poor conditions, um, that uh, arguably Israel has uh, been oppressive uh, for many, many years, uh, all of that. But they have made some decisions when they have, have had 
uh, a democratic say when they've had opportunities to vote. Uh, they have voted for quite radical people, uh, including, uh, you know, people affiliated to Hamas. Uh, and they have made some very, very poor uh, decisions, decisions I can understand, but decisions that have only made things worse. And I was struck recently, uh, of course, she was lambasted uh, over here for it. Um, but Hillary Clinton was making the point very strongly that Bill Clinton, you know, you know, for all his strengths and weaknesses, um, you know, a, a really good negotiator, no question about it, and a good reader uh, of people. He had them very, very close. I mean, he had, um, you know, something close to what could have been a Good Friday agreement um, between the two sides. Uh, and she is of the view um, that it was the Palestinians who walked away from the table, you know, that that was uh, that was how it happened. And of course, as I say, uh, she's been lambasted by the European left for saying that. Um, but that, to me, uh, was very, very close. And, you know, since then, uh, one of the things that's come to light is since then, people, the international community almost kind of wanted to make this go away. Oh, we feel like and we saw Tony Blinken saying stuff like this, I think, last year or the year before. Oh, we've got a lid on things over there. Things are getting better. And then all of a sudden, uh, October 7th came along, which showed that the, you know, the tension here never had died down. And one of the things I'll say about the hatred, and this is coming from somebody uh, as, uh, you know, who's a practicing Catholic, you know, and goes to mass every week. Um, religion here is a factor to an extent that it really never was um, in uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland. I mean, you had nominal Catholics and nominal Protestants, but uh, I think, you know, with the exception perhaps of Ian Paisley and some of the others, uh, at least on the Catholic side, I think you'd have to look long and hard to see um, the last time Jerry Adams went to mass or anything like that, you know? So, but here uh, on both sides, there is, and on, particularly on the Palestinian side, there is a religious fervor that underpins uh, an awful lot of this. And that's what I think makes that kind of visceral. And we saw this in the language um, that was being used uh, on both sides. Uh, and we still see, you know, we still see people in New York tearing down pictures, pictures of missing Jewish children. On the flip side, we had Israeli leaders talking about Palestinians as, you know, animals. Um, you know, how do you get around that when people are taking those? So when they're ripping down pictures of missing children, calling the other side animals, we're a long way, sadly, we're a long way from an, uh, a Middle East Good Friday agreement, in my view. I, th I think that that's a really interesting point, because sort of on the surface, for, for people who are not sort of familiar with the details of what was going on in, in Northern Ireland, it was sort of the, a broader just, oh, you know, Catholics and Protestants are these, you know, just another one of these religious sectarian conflicts. And I think, and I think, I think that is an important distinction between what's going on in Israel and Palestine, but, but how much of it potentially is also there, right? Because there is the, this idea that Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland weren't given the same rights, didn't have self-determination, didn't have a lot of the things that make life seem fair, whether or not the outcomes are, you know, as you would hope they would be is one thing, but sort of this general perception of like, are things fair yeah, am I born with the same chance? And and maybe I make my own life decisions that don't give me that outcome. Is that like, I guess, how much of that do you see or, or do people see as a part of the the struggle in Palestine versus just this intractable, we have Muslims on one side and and Jews on the other? Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting question, you know, and my 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 suspicion is that most and I think what you're getting at it I don't want to put words in your mouth in terms of the the question was um you know and I don't want to be glib was that um part of the reason why there was uh, you know the Good Friday agreement and something something of a resolution in Northern Ireland was that um people wanted to have a decent life they wanted the things that everybody else wants and they wanted to um you know prosper for for lack of a better way of putting it um my guess is that uh you know, in, in Palestine, that most people are of that ilk, that that's what they want. They want good things for their kids. They want good things for their families. Um, and, and the same, I think, is, is clear uh, in, in Israel as well. But in both places, um, there are people whose um, religious fervor and ideology is one that, um, you know, this is a lot in this world, but this world is fleeting. This world is short. And uh, the big game is the next world. 
and that that guides their ideological compass uh, as much as anything else. Um, and that worries me deeply. And again, I don't think it's the majority, but I think it is uh, a substantial uh, thing. And I think both places um, are very, very badly led. Uh, you know, I think that uh, Netanyahu is, you know, Netanyahu, when this is over, uh, he's likely going to jail. You know, he that's the reality. This guy is, he's not a good guy. Um, this, you know, a lot of conspiracy theorists say that, you know, this was a too big a failure of intelligence, that this is the war that Netanyahu needed um, to stay afloat. Um, and, you know, again, I don't want to say, I, I won't say anything charitable uh, about the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, um, because I don't think they're entitled to any charity, um, while at the same time, I have huge sympathy for the people uh, of Gaza who suffer, and the, and the West Bank, who suffered so much. So that's why I think that there are, there, there, there are similarities between these, there are lessons to be learned, but there are distinctions that I think make the learning of the lessons, it's going to take a lot longer. That's my guess. That's totally fair. But I guess, you know, if they were calling Larry Donnelly over there to try to give some of those lessons, what, what would like what would be the foundational things that we could take from this agreement, which again is similar in some ways, but very, very different in others? But what are some of the things that you do think are trans would potentially be transferable to that conflict? Well, I, I think you know one of one of the things that you know the the you know the the northern the Good Friday Agreement was to enshrine the this idea of the principle of consent and the the principle of uh, self determination. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know how and when the northern question would be resolved, um, and I think that 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 idea of um, self determination is at the heart of the idea of a two state solution. Uh, and I think that that is, for all its faults, and there's been lots of criticism, and even some people here saying that the a one-state solution is the only probability, the only possibility. Um, for all its faults, I think the two-state solution remains the only way forward, where Palestinians have a state of their own, where they have self-determination, where they aren't reliant, for instance, uh, upon uh, Israel's say-so to get vital goods every single day so that they can live. Um, you know, I think that giving that degree of self-determination, you know, is crucial. But, you know, to get that, uh, you know, Palestinians have to accept that it's not acceptable, um, you know, to constantly be launching uh, missiles uh, over the border, which they have done and continue, have, have done continuously um, for many, many years. So both sides, the idea of one of the things the Good Friday Agreement was both sides had to eat some stuff. You know, for instance, uh, even in the Republic, they had to eat uh, and, you know, to do away with the claim in the Irish Constitution to Northern Ireland, the aspiration for unity. They had to eat that. They'd say, no, we're going to amend the Constitution, take that stuff out. Um, you know, on the flip side, um, you know, unionists had to eat the, the idea that, you know, when and if there appears to be a, a majority who want to have the question of whether this jurisdiction, this island should be one jurisdiction or two, then that vote needs to be held. And you can't stonewall, you can't push it back. It's going to happen, but only under principle of consent. So both sides had to eat a little. And that's what um, this ultimately comes down to. I know that that sounds really basic, but that idea that you know, the Good Friday Agreement, that you need to compromise, um, that's the only way we're going to get some sort of resolution um, to what's happening. But I just, again, because people's heels are dug in so hard, um, constitute, constitute, you know, you know that sort of cooperation um, seems to me to be a, a ways off. Yeah, I mean, and I think one of the other aspects that we didn't really get into, and you can touch on this if you want, is how international this conflict is in comparison to the one in Ireland. Obviously, the the, the UK was a major world power, and the United States, as you mentioned, was involved. But here, really. It, it feels like everyone is involved in this conflict and that just provides more dynamics. It makes it more difficult. I, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, at, at, at one level, I mean, and you know, maybe, maybe uh, it's, it's not too much to say that this is an unfolding tra tragedy. You know, what we're seeing is, is absolutely tragic, but at another level. And I, and again, I don't want people to take this the wrong way. It is in this, in another sense, it is deeply fascinating. 
um, to watch all of this and to see all of it. Uh, it's fascinating and depressing at the same time, I should say, um, because, yeah, I mean, everyone has um, a take on this. It seems like everyone has a take on this. Um, my regret is that the takes, at least the takes you see on social media, uh, aren't more nuanced. Um, and, you know, it, it is really regrettable, um, you know, that people can't simultaneously say what happened on October 7th was absolutely horrific. It was barbaric. There is no condoning it. There is no but afterwards. That stands on its own. At the same time, the fact that the, the, the loss of life and the destruction uh, of so much uh, in Palestine that's followed is by any measure disproportionate and needs to stop. I don't understand why people can't accept that both of those things uh, are true. And maybe that's what at the same time fascinates and exasperates me uh, as I watch uh, all of this uh, unfold. The one thing I will say is in terms of this getting international, one thing we are lucky is that this hasn't, uh, at least to date, there were fears about Iran and Hezbollah and all that. We haven't seen that and hopefully we never do. Agreed. And you've been more than generous with your time. I think this has been a fantastic conversation, Ricky. You've given Ricky and I plenty to think about and talk about. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning how Ireland has always been interested in U.S. politics and has only become more obsessed in the era of former President Trump. So do you just want to take a, a couple minutes here to like what are, what are the things that you're seeing, that you're hearing when, you, when you're being asked to come on Irish media? What are people asking you about? I think that the, the biggest the biggest thing that people ask about uh, in, in it, it, it's and the American people are asking the same question. And I think the American people have reached an overwhelming conclusion on this is that in a country of 330 million or so people that are talented, diverse, extraordinary in so many ways. Why is it that we are staring down the barrel of a rematch between these two individuals? And, and I don't have a good answer for them. I really don't. And look, that's the same conclusion that the American people have reached. I mean, poll after poll shows that the vast majority of people, uh, you know, don't want either of these guys um, at the top of the ticket. Um, and the, then the follow on question becomes, you know, what chance would a third party uh, candidate have, uh, you know, of winning? And I always say, look, the, you know, the, 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 the graveyards are littered with the corpses of people who thought that they had the the vehicle for a third party um, in the United States. Um, that having been said, you know, given the level of discontent with both candidates, uh, you know, it does make me wonder uh, if a third party candidate could, you know, I, I do think there's a, every chance that the third party candidacies that we're hearing about, whether it's uh, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, Cornell West, Jill Stein now, perhaps Joe Manchin. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that even though they, they probably get a small percentage of the vote, they could tip the balance. They could have play a decisive role uh, in how this thing turns out. But that's the general gist of things. I, I think, you know, question, why do we have these two again? Um, and, uh, you know, just a kind of disbelief um, that, again, I'll boil it down to two, 330 million people diverse in every way. How is it uh, the two just two political parties are meant to represent all of them? Well, it seems like they're having the same conversations that we're having, but uh, at least that, that's a commonality between us. Yeah. Uh, but for us, Darnley, thank you so much. Again, I, I think this is really exactly what we were hoping for from this conversation, and we're going to have so much to think about and talk about. And so we appreciate your time, and who knows, maybe down the road we'll have you back once as we get closer to 2024 and, and see what people are thinking about what you're thinking about. It, it would be a great pleasure. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. really exactly what you and I were looking for and continue to say this. I feel like almost after every guest is how lucky we are that people like Professor Donnelly give us their time. I really think that he is uniquely positioned to have like the perspectives that that are super interesting, relevant to this discussion. Ricky, I knew that the, re the reaction to this conflict was different in Western Europe generally, in Ireland particularly, than in the United States. 
But I was struck that he came out from the beginning and said that the left of Ireland is to the is to the left of even here in the United States, because that's almost difficult for me to believe. And then that the the center of Ireland was really where our left is. And he went on to explain very well, I think, why that is historically. But that still is striking to me. And I guess it's really good for me because obviously on this conflict in, in the Middle East, I've I've been on my very much a, a pro-Israel side, even though I do feel like I've tried to bring a little nuance and understanding to this as well. But to try to understand uh, in the in the Ireland England conflict, I'm very much on the Irish side. So like it's there's far more consistency, I guess, in some of these you know the Irish government saying that we understand the plight of the Palestinian people because that was our plight. And I think that's something I'm going to have to wrestle with. But I, I was struck by just how pro-Palestinian Professor Darling was saying that Ireland is right now. Yeah. And and that's so and obviously, you know, based on the things that I like and I follow, my social media feed has been littered with videos of uh, politicians, particularly members of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, you know, uh, you know, uh, effectively coming out and saying e- exactly what Professor Donnelly had said. And so like in preparation for this, I tried my best to read up on the conflict and um, in sort of the troubles and the preceding or sort of what led to that period in in Ireland's history. And obvi- I mean, no disclaimers really needed that I'm <laughs> the furthest, furthest, furthest thing from an expert before probably this past week, like, all I knew about was Irish car bombs and the cranberries and that, <laughs> probably two very offensive things uh, for anybody who's been involved, sort of been involved or had a, had a stake in this conflict. But I mean, the parallels for me are, are, you know, depending on how you craft the story are, are very, they're very evident, right? Like obviously Ireland has a, a long, long history. People have been living there for a long time, but it has also been conquered by multiple people um, from, you know, I, I don't think the Roman Empire really ever got there, but you had the Roman Catholic missionaries that eventually got there, right? Basically turned the whole island Catholic, but then you had Vikings and you've had Normans from France. And so again, sort of like that question of, well, who's like, or like, well, you know, what makes you Irish Irish versus like English Irish or right. So the, there's, there's that kind of a question. And then of course you layer in this religious component. And so much of that is very similar to what's going on in, in the country of Israel, but sort of the, the historical land of Palestine, you've had Arabs, you've had Jews, you've had different uh, people from different times in that area who would who have probably lineage of a couple hundred years and then of course you layer on this the the religious divide um and yeah it, i mean it was so and then of course like the the rise of the the ira post 1960s which was effectively, you know, was labeled by the U.S. and other countries, a terrorist organization. They carried out all of their, you know, quote unquote missions through car bombs and other attacks on primarily either civilian populations or military people who were not, you know, in soldiers garb, right? Like people at at bars kind of things. But their entire stance was, well, the Irish army is not helping us here. They're not crossing the border into Northern Ireland to protect us. You've got the the British army who's here to effectively protect the Protestants. And so who do we have? Where do we turn? And we have no self-determination because they've created laws that basically prevent Irish Catholics from holding office or getting, as as the professor went, educational opportunities, any, any opportunities in... Um, in jobs and all of these things, and then really hoarded them into a few of these counties. I think Derry and one or two others were almost exclusively Irish Catholic in, you know, what is, I mean, Northern Ireland, still part of the island of Ireland, right? So it's just fascinating to see sort of the rise of this. And then also sort of people's reactions. Like, as he said, people in Southern Ireland were like, 
you know, why are they doing this? They're bombing innocent people. That's horrible. And so, you know, support for the IRA during the troubles, maybe not that high outside of places within Northern Ireland where they're like, yeah, but they're the only people doing something for us and everybody else has forgotten about us. And I think that plight carries, translates very cleanly over to what's going on. And I think the problem, of course, is that the solution is a lot trickier because the land question is the land question and how it relates to sort of the religious, uh, yeah, the religious areas of Jerusalem and, and other sort of similar places make that a very difficult question because in Northern Ireland, you didn't end up settling sort of a trade-off of significant portions of territory, but what the IRA did gain or Sinn Féin did gain, depending on who you sort of think of as like the, you know, who's the protagonist in the story? Is it that the politics won out in the end, or is it that sort of exacerbation with the terrorism won out in the end, but you did get increased rights, self-determination, basically a dual government that's both Catholic and Protestant aimed at protecting citizens and both. So that's like a super high level, but like in almost every vein, I it just felt like this is, man, we've, we've seen this before. Um, and the sad part is we're almost going about it in the same way. Um, so I don't Yeah. Sorry. So, you, did, you did your history and then you got to get out. You got to show everyone that you did your history, uh, your research. Um, a lot of interesting points. I think the terror thing is, is really interesting and in how that changes because as you mentioned, and as we had talked about, Ricky, back in the spring, we did a, a six and sixty, and one of the episodes was on Israel, on Israel Palestine, and there was just kind of a Israel had been escalating their their incursions into Gaza at the time, and I think I had said like, you know, pro Israel here, but there's only so far you can push someone before they're going to start like responding, and you could you could argue. And I think a lot of, and Professor Darnley kind of touched on this, I think a lot of Irish Americans would argue that what Sinn Féin did in like their campaign of terror worked, right? Like they uh, ultimately, we kind of got what we wanted, which was a better life for Irish Catholic nationalists who were living in Northern Ireland. And I think there are, I would imagine that many Palestinians in Palestine, but maybe particularly around the world would say kind of like this works. I think the, the, a really important point that Professor Darling was making is that many people, most people in Southern Ireland, even many people in Northern Ireland hated the terror and said that like, look, because what happened, we talked about the provisional IRA a lot, but as Professor Darling mentioned, like the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF was the terrorist organization for the, the Protestants, the, you know, the loyalists, they were doing the same thing. And of course, what happens when the provisional IRA does this bomb in a bar, then you have a bomb in the bar for, for these people. And so, the many people on the ground actually hated the terror because it was what it, they knew what it led to, right? It's just going to lead to more and more deaths of in more and more people. And so I think that's one thing that's interesting to me. And I, I wanted to ask him this a little bit is how like the moderate government of Ireland, right? Like they have to be the ones that even if you can say, I understand why you feel like you have to do what you, you did, like you, this is not right. And so I, I, that's why in yeah. he was getting this at this at the end too, is when you see all this stuff on social media and all these people opining, including you and I, that have no real stake in this at all. No, it's, so, so I, yeah. think, I think that that is, I think that that's the crux of it, right? Like a lot of people would think back and I was trying to get at this, like how do people view the IRA now versus like during that time. And I think the answer is like largely the same. And the difference is that like people within that movement will credit that movement for forcing the British to come to the table. But other historians would look at it and say, like, actually what happened was people on both sides started saying, okay, we're actually not getting anywhere. And it was a political solution that, that created the peace. And so when you think about, but they had to give up a decent amount, right? So the, the, and, and this is, I think really where I start to see 
parallels for a possible solution. And the problem is that the way that the British government was set up in Northern Ireland is is very similar to how we think about dealing with these you know so-called terrorist organizations because the idea is that if we can sort of starve them if we can reduce their political power if we can keep them in certain neighborhoods then we can keep ourselves safe i think is the false that like that is the false premise because you know after the blood after bloody sunday you know the quote was you know, we might not have all been IRA before, but we're all IRA now, right? And it, it's the same kind of, it's, it's the same kind of problem in that you cannot solve, like terrorism is a result of destitute conditions. It is not just that people hate people for the simple fact that they're Catholic and they're Protestant and we're Catholic, right? If you don't have the conditions to create these terrorist movements, even if you have people on the far fringes, like you're always going to have those, but it's very hard to sustain a terrorist movement on just like a handful of people who are hell bent on killing other people. Right. And those people exist in Israel as well. Right. You know, you talk a lot of mention is made in 2007, Palestinians elected Hamas. Well, Israel in the Knesset continues to elect far right folks who have the exact same view that there should be no Arabs in Israel and that like, hey, if we need to, we'll drop a, a nuke on Gaza. Right. You've that's been said. But that's not the majority of people. The majority of people want to live lives with opportunities for themselves and for their children. They want to just be safe and I think most of them also understand that I can be Muslim in my house and go to my mosque. And that doesn't have any impact on you being Jewish in your house and going to your temple, right? Like these things are, they seem so mutually exclusive, but they're really, really not. And that's, I think the, I think that's, I think that's hope that gives you hope, right? But it's also scary. And, and I think even what he was saying sort of with the current condition in Northern Ireland that you, like, as you mentioned, when you went to Belfast, that it's still like palpable, this tension. Um, and I think like some of the walls that divide the communities between Catholics and Protestants are still there, right? So like whether or not this is really a lasting situation is also to be seen, but it's, um, I don't know, but maybe, you know, you have peace for long enough and, you know, people start, you know, Protestants cross the wall and marry Catholics and vice versa. And all of a sudden, these aren't so segregated and they're not so antagonistic. And and maybe, you know, you can you can get something out of it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I actually I feel like I left both this discussion and like some of just like following, trying to understand the history a little bit more hopeful than I have been in the past. Um, but I think he's absolutely right. The leadership on both sides completely has to go because neither of them are interested in peace. They actually derive their power from the struggle, from violence. Both sides, Hamas, Netanyahu, are really, that's that's where their bread and butter is. Like, <laughs> Arlie, I, I love your positivity. I would say that Professor Donnelly was more, was less optimistic because of all of the reasons that we've talked about, just how deeply rooted that this this conflict is. It is similar that some of the parallels are. It's, it's really different it, in other ways and how international it is, as I brought up, but also like the historical significance of some of the places of the land, which is just was just not present in, in the in the Irish conflict. Uh, so look, I, but I, I do think ultimately you're right. And on the negative side of things, people are going to have to be exhausted of the bloodshed before they want to sit down and come to the table. And unfortunately, that doesn't look like it's close right now. It actually looks like the opposite is that people are more bloodthirsty than ever, again, on, on both sides. On the other hand, that's how it looked in Ireland up until the Good Friday Agreement. Like if you look at the early 90s, the mid-90s in Ireland, that was as, as dangerous as it ever was. And then all of a sudden, people were like, enough. And so, yeah, I probably like the realistic point of view is what Professor Donnelly was saying is that we are years and years away from that. But the optimistic point of view is that at some point that will happen. And we have at least a blueprint as different as, as the situations might be for a potential solution. Last thing, 
think as you said, and I can't re- recommend highly enough going to Northern Ireland, be head on a swivel and, and kind of you gotta you gotta be very aware. I've never been any like anywhere like that in the world. And it was almost hard for me to to think that a place like this existed in the world where literally on one half of the wall you have all Irish flags and the other half of the wall you have all British flags. You still have graffiti everywhere saying like the war is not over. You are walking through gates that were armed and separated that people had to go in and out. But that's what you see going in out of Israel right now. And so it's all very much there. And the tension, like I said, was is palpable. But 25 years on, knock on wood, like things have been relative, largely peaceful. And I think that's really going to be hope number one for Israel and Palestine. So, Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this maybe a closing thought is I think this issue is going to continue to pop up in the in the U.S. campaign. Um, right. Like we talk about foreign policy in general being a an area where the president actually has a ton of sway uh but it it tends to fall on like you know number eight or number nine of people's priorities going into elections i think the the attention that israel and palestine is getting right now is going to be an interesting factor and right now as as he mentioned like in the U.S. government, aside from a few outliers, like there's a lot of uniform support for Israel, but that may be out of step with kind of the the world. Not and and this isn't this isn't to say that people are against the existence of the state of Israel. This is to say they're against what is going on and the reaction um, to October seventh as something that they don't believe is right. And I think, you know, the U.S. continuing to, you know, veto U.N. resolutions calling for ceasefires and things like that are going to be an issue in a way that they haven't been in the past. Because in the last, at least in the last 20 years, terrorists were terrorists, whether it was here on September 11th or, you know, in in Israel in, in 2007, there was kind of a uniform view of them. I think that view is changing a little bit. Um, I'm really interested to see how it how it plays out. Yeah, as President Donnelly said, it's fascinating. And again, it's easy for people like us who can sit here safely in our houses without friends or family really over there to to take that view. But it's definitely something that will continue to resonate. And I mean, if, if you watched Republican debate last week, it was the first hour was all foreign policy was all Israel was all Ukraine and that's ultimately those discussions hopefully will be will be fruitful but uh again I think we've said this a million million times we don't know anything uh like we we are we have our our opinions we do our our research but uh, we ultimately what we hope for is that people there get to live like lives that are that are safe and free from this harm and people all over the world that are hurting Palestinians, Israelis alike, uh, can have some sort of comfort. But hopefully, you know, maybe this conversation did spark some thoughts and spark some optimism. It's really exactly what we were hoping to have. And so it's, it's nice when it, it kind of things work out like that for, for our show. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. All right, bud. Till next time. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz
learn the hard way that to those who would die upon that hill quiet truth is better than rain somewhere along the line we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong some mornings you away some morning let your ego bruise but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share like American ideal friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find a chase of lies here folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a chase of lies here folks of different minds Because Though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.